This guy has run across deserts, summited ice-covered volcanoes, swam with crocodiles, and served a stint in federal prison. But Charlie Ingalls says his greatest challenge is the one he takes on every single day, sobriety. He's the author of Running Man, a memoir, and Charlie joined Pick Up the Six to talk about what he used to run from, what he's running towards now, and how he's finding a way within him for purpose-driven pursuits. Charlie Engel, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. Hey, thanks, Brian. Happy to be here, dude. Man, I'm so excited. I'm so excited yeah. to uh, to have you on this one and, and talk through what has been a heck of a ride for you in your life. So let's start here. You've been running since you were a kid. And as the story goes, in the eighth grade, you ran your first sub five minute mile. So who's Charlie Engel and how long you've been running, man? Well, at that point, I was six feet tall, exactly as I am now, although there's a chance I'm a little shorter now, but uh, I was six feet tall and about 120 pounds. And so I I really wasn't good at anything else. And uh, I discovered that, you know, I liked to run and I grew up right here in North Carolina. and, And in fact, I'm talking to you now from Durham and the house I was in at that age was just about a mile over near South Point Mall, uh, probably underneath Macy's somewhere right now. And, uh, you know, and, and it was the country, you know, and I, I love to just go out and and uh, and run. And, and that's really my it is kind of the I guess the heart of where I come from is is really liking the outdoors, feeling safe, feeling happy. Uh, My grandfather was the head track coach at UNC Chapel Hill uh, for about 40 years from the 20s into the 60s. And uh, he died when I was only a year old, so I never got to know him, but it was one of those things we do in families, right? It was a legacy. People used to tell me, "You're you're gonna be a runner just like your grandfather. And uh, ultimately, I was nowhere near as talented as he was. But um, I think those kind of legacies really speak to us, even if it's subconsciously. What about it makes it so appealing for you? Because as someone who has really only in the last four years embraced the spirit of the freedom that comes with going for a run and, and the ability to disconnect and just even if you're running with friends, be, be in yourself and, and be in your legs and be in your lungs and be in your heart and be in your head a little bit. But before that was a guy that hated every step of it. And quite frankly, on a run would just be counting down to when it was finishing four more miles to go, three more miles to go. But for you, what, what, what about it makes it just such a part of who you are? You know, and, and, and you're so, um, you described it extremely well. And I think that that's the attitude a lot of people have towards running. And it's, my joke is always when somebody says, I hate running, I'm like, oh, okay. So like you hate being outdoors and you hate like the clean air and the sunshine and the woods and the birds, like you hate all that. And they're like, no, no, that's not what I mean. I'm like, oh, okay. So you don't hate running. You hate how running makes you feel sometimes. And that. That interesting difference, it dawns on people once they've put in a certain amount of time. I mean, frankly, it's not unlike sobriety because, you know, that early phase, there's a little bit of like joyful, wow, this is amazing. And then like not long after, it's like, oh, my God, this sucks. (laughs) And 
you have to give it long enough for the effects of it to actually become embedded and not just be not just be surface effects. And so I think the mechanism that happens for me, you know, running is a sort of meditation. And so when it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, you know, when I go out the door with my running shoes and I don't care if it's, you know, 15 degrees or 115 degrees, my mind begins to just anticipate that. Like I am like that dog that, you know, knows when the leash gets grabbed, hey, we're going out. Like that part of me kicks in. And I think that it's, um, I'm not a huge fan of like those kind of mantras where you're sort of lying to yourself. But I do always tell people when you start running, number one, slow down. Because most of the time, a person who hasn't run, I don't know if this is you or not, who maybe hasn't run for years, like since high school or since whenever you played sports back in the day, you go back out and you start running 10 years later or whatever, and you expect to run and feel that same way. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> you it know, doesn't work that way. <laughs> doesn't work that way. And so you have to allow your body, you know, to, to sort of adjust to the added stress. And so I always tell people, I, every person I ever start running, um, I start them on a running walking program, you know, that, that basically allows them to begin to adjust and spend that first 30 days actually finding the joy and the experience because it's, it's miserable if, if we tell ourselves we're miserable and that is just kind of the, you know, it's the common thing. So it is, it is an exercise in trust and belief and building confidence towards this, this new thing. But in short, it's freedom for me. I mean, it, it, I've never, I haven't made a big decision of any kind in the last 25 years, probably, where it didn't, I may not have made the decision on a run, but I either confirmed or flipped the decision on a run. Because somehow all the marbles bouncing around my head, the ones that need attention and I really need to focus on tend to rise to the top when I've got good blood flow and I'm out in nature and like, it's, it's usually like a, huh you know what, I, I shouldn't have had that argument, or I really re need to rethink this decision that I made over here. And that usually happens when I'm sweating. <laughs> mm -hmm. The challenge comes keeping a pad and a pen, a pen and a paper and, and a pen. I do voice, I do voice dictation. I do. I mean, when so I'm out, it comes to you in that moment, right? Totally. Language technology, if you've got something to be able to do. Totally, totally. Just do a, just do a short voice memo. And I mean, sometimes I just use it as my my diary, and I, I may never even go back and listen to it, but somehow whatever's on my mind, if I say it out loud and take a couple of notes like that, it just feels good to have it, you know, out into the universe. Your story is incredible. You've accomplished so many amazing things related to running, but throughout that, and if folks are able to go pick up Running Man, a memoir, and we highly recommend they do, they're going to see that it comes with tons of trials and tribulations. And so even through all these achievements, through ultra marathons and these incredible distance events that you've done, you didn't get there without trouble along the way. So let me fast forward to, we talked about that eighth grade kid at six feet tall, 120 pounds of bean pole at that point, running five minute mile. When you get to college, things get rough and some things stack up and, and some temptations and some vices and some addictions get put on you pretty hard. So what happens there? 
yeah, well, I go to UNC Chapel Hill as a 17-year-old freshman. And, you know, after being awfully special in high school and being the captain of some teams and, uh, you know, dating cheerleaders and making good grades, you know, I get to Carolina and I find out that I'm incredibly average. <laughs> and that was a... That was a shock to me. Not that I thought I was all that amazing, but, you know, I just didn't realize there would be 4,000 other freshmen at Carolina that basically had the exact same credentials I did. And I, I sort of fell into this place where early on, I, the drinking age also was 18. So I turned 18 about a month after I got to school. And not that I was waiting for that to start drinking, but I mean, I basically discovered that I was... Uh, a really, and I'm using air quotes, a really good drinker, you know, and it became part of my identity in college. I was sort of that guy that I think I was mostly fun to be around back in those days. Um, that evolved, though, into cocaine, which was pretty much ubiquitous on campus in the 80s. And, um, you know, and it, it, the difference between me and I didn't understand it at the time, but you know, even good friends of mine that I would uh, drink and party with, you know, they went to bed at three o'clock and actually tried to get up and go to their nine o'clock class. You know, I very early on realized that there was no stopping me once I started mm -hmm. anytime. I never drank two beers in my life unless I was on a desert island and that's all that was available. Like if I, if I drank, I was going to drink until I was done. And, you know, the same was true with any drug I could get my hands on. And, you know, so I basically spent a dozen years, as I like to say, sort of chasing that very first experience. And, and I do believe that that's kind of what we do in life. We have a we all have a habit of I, it happens in running too. people have this amazing experience when they run their first marathon and they they sort of continue to run and do that in a, in a sense, chasing that experience. Well, you can't really have the butterflies and anxiety in your 10th marathon that you had in your first one. And the same is true with drinking and drug use. And so I, I basically spent over a decade just sort of, I moved six or seven times around the country. I was always the top salesperson everywhere I went because I felt like if I could I could be that guy on this side, then I could justify my behavior on the other side. And, you know, and it just didn't work out. And, and I finally, you know, after trying to quit dozens and dozens of times, I mean, I even made a joke about it. I would say quitting's easy. Like I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> Start right back up again. <laughs> right. So are you in, in, in all this where you're talking about a dozen years here and, and career and job and salesman, uh, are you still are you still running and balancing running events through, through all this? Tell me a little bit yeah, about so this, I, this, this crazy I, balancing act. You're probably trying to tell yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would spend, you know, three months, uh, I would be ashamed, embarrassed, um, you know, threatened to be fired or my wife leaving me or whatever it might be. And then I would straighten up and I'd start running. And I, you know, I used running during those years as kind of my, instantaneous mechanism to get out and start getting my body and my mind in shape. And, you know, inevitably, because I wasn't doing any other kind of emotional work, uh, you know, a month, sometimes just a few days, but, you know, a few days, a few weeks, a few months later, 
I would be comfortable again and I would stop doing any of the things, you know, I would keep running, but there would come the day where, of course, you know, I was just named salesman of the month at work and I ran, you know, a 20 miler on Saturday. Surely I can have a couple of beers. And, you know, and, and as I said earlier, there has never been a day where I had two beers. So not, not unless I simply couldn't get any more. And so it, it took a long time of banging my head against the wall to just come to the realization. And I think you know the story, but my first son was born when I was 29 years old. And, and he, you know, as I like to say, he didn't know it, but he was going to save me. You know, I was like, finally, you know, here's this person that I love and that loves me. And like, surely I can stop for him. Like, I'm going to do this for him. And of course, that didn't work either. And, you know, and I found myself inevitably surrounded by police and bullet holes in my car and sitting on the ground at the end of a six day binge. And, you know, and the, the clearest, even though I hadn't slept in six days, you know, I had the clearest thought I've ever had. Like nobody's coming to save you. Like there is no, <laughs> there is no there out there. Like there's only in here. And like, until I make the decision to save myself, you know, there is nobody else that's going to come do it for me. And, and that was the day that I, I'd been to many meetings before then. I'd been to treatment one time for 30 days, a few years earlier. And like, but that was the first time I actually went to a 12 step recovery meeting with the clear intention of actually quitting. <laughs> and I did that that night you know, on that, that the end of that binge, I got up the next day and I put on my running shoes and I did those two things for the next three years. Every single day I ran and I went to a meeting for three years without missing a single day. And, you know, and it wasn't magic. It was hard work, but slowly I started to build a life for myself. Did you say at the beginning of that, I'm going to get to a year, two years, three years. I mean, what was your mental approach to be able to just tick this thing off? Yeah, you know, I never set a time goal. I never said, I, I, that's not really true. I did say in the beginning, I had a sponsor who encouraged me towards 90 meetings in 90 days, you know, which is a pretty common thing. And, and you know, being the good addict that I am, I uh, I like to overachieve. And I got to that 90 days and I was like, well, this is working, you know, for me. I'm enjoying this. I love the running. I love the meetings. I was really, I was, you know, deeply in, into it. And, and I just, you know, I think I was partly terrified too, that like somehow if I took a day off, um, especially with the meetings, that if I took a day off that I wouldn't find my way back. I don't, I don't know if it was rational, but it actually helped me um, you know, it helped me make sure that I made that my top priority. And I was scared at the end of three years, because when I got to that three year anniversary, I, I will admit, I, I, I did recognize, okay, you know what, you, you can't actually do these two things every day for the rest of your life. I mean, that's not going to happen for me, because I need to start building some other parts of my life. But no, I think the foundation was set. And then, you know, I, to this day, you know, almost 29 years later, I still go to meetings and I still run. And, you know, I need those two things equally. Like they're, 
there is not one, you know, and some people in 12-step recovery give me a hard time, but like, that's not more important to me than my physical health. And I actually think it's a mistake in the addiction recovery world um, that more people don't prioritize their overall health, recognizing mm -hmm. how much that impacts the rest of their lives and how they feel and emotionally how they are. But that's, that may be a topic for uh, the next podcast, but, um, you well, know, I, I, I get I the feeling we're going to need to circle back on a couple of these yeah. things and maybe <laughs> dig a little bit deeper. It's July 23rd, 1992. You yeah. put that line in the sand and we're moving forward from there. There's a major hurdle that comes your way 18 years later. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but, but from that moment on, Let's talk about some of the running adventures and some of the things you did in between that time frame. So what is Charlie Engel doing? Where, where are we going across the globe to, in this pursuit of distance running and pushing yourself to the next level and, and celebrating the freedom that comes with that ability to get outside and explore this, this physical ability that you have? Yeah, you know, I just, I, I did truly fall in love with it. And I, I, um, during those three years, you know, I ran like 30 marathons. So, I mean, as, as I like to say, clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control mm -hmm. and you know what a lot of people did, uh, question whether I had just switched addictions even. And it took, it took a few years for me to understand though, that that's not what happened. And that addiction is about darkness and loneliness and having no feelings. And as you know, running is the exact opposite with running you you have no choice but to be fully present and you're going to feel everything good and bad and i i took my love for that and started to say okay if the lessons i've learned through running in these first few years and recovery have made me this person then what will happen if i run 50 miles <laughs> or what will happen if i run 100 miles or hundreds of miles across deserts and jungles and mountain ranges uh, around the world and that's what i started doing and i i won a lot of races and i uh more importantly i got to see some amazing places around the globe and the the cultural exploration is so much more important than the racing but like even with my book as you notice you know i always like to i hook people in i like to think with um stories of running or whatever it might be but then I like to talk about actual things mm -hmm. and and life and uh, the people that I've encountered out there in the world and I just I I fell in love with that and I, I was working as a tv producer for ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition for a few years and you know, and it, I had this really strange, interesting life. You know, I've been self-employed, you know, for 30 years. I used to joke this because, of course, nobody's foolish enough to actually hire me. Um, and I make a terrible employee anyway. But, you know, it, it became this sort of quest for me to see if I could mm -hmm. slowly begin to make the thing I was passionate about, which was running and travel, into, into my vocation, into something I could actually make a living at. And... Um, I, in a race in the Amazon jungle back in like 2005, I met a guy there who blurted out this terrible idea and asked me if I'd ever thought about running across the Sahara desert. And I, I told him he was an idiot and that we'd have to be idiots to even think about it. And 
And of course I couldn't stop thinking about it <laughs> because I am an idiot. And you know, that, that finding something in the adventure world that's never been done before is a pretty tall order. It doesn't happen very often. And I began to just tell people with no evidence at all that I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. And, you know, it's almost 5,000 miles and you can't just like, you know, you can't go to Barnes and Noble and buy a book like the Appalachian Trail, you know? I mean, Appalachian Trails, I haven't done it. And it is a, it's, it's one of those quests out there for me that I want to do. But like, you could buy 20 books and map everything out and you still have to do the physical work, but the rest of it, there's no such thing for the Sahara Desert. And, um, you know, so, uh, I got. I met a director named James Mall, and he had won the Academy Award. And I, I talked as I like to say. I, I basically talked him into thinking this was a good idea. He called me a week later, and he's like, you know, hey, Matt Damon would like to executive produce this, and he'd like to narrate the film. Like, would that be okay with you? And I'm like, well, gosh, James, sure. I was really hoping. I was hoping for somebody better than that, but <laughs> sure, Matt Damon will be fine. And we got Goodwill Hunting on board. What's not to like? <laughs> and so now there's two, you know, Academy Award winners attached to a crazy run about me running across sand. And I'm, you know, a year or so later, I'm in Senegal and I'm I'm surrounded by my team and they're all excited. And like, we've actually made this thing start, you know, to the gotten to the starting line. And all I can think is, you know, I've suckered all of these people out here to the Sahara desert and like, we're all going to die. Like there's no, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. People, you know, people assume it's like, yeah, you know, you got the whole plan. Well, we all know you can have kids, you can start a business, you can do anything. You think, you know, the plan and you, you usually find out you don't know anything. And, and the plan doesn't evolve until everything goes wrong. And you know, and that's how this came to be. And, and everything did go wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's the old Mike Tyson saying, everybody's got a plan until they got punched in the mouth. And I also heard Tony Robbins say once, if you take off from Los Angeles and you're flying towards Hawaii, and if your plane gets pushed by one degree, one degree, and you don't course correct, you'll miss the island by a thousand miles. <laughs> so you're running across the freaking Sahara Desert. Yeah. What's it like? Yeah, it's hot. Who knew? <laughs> who, who knew? It's hot and sandy. No, I mean, we we started this thing so on the Atlantic coast in Senegal and West Africa. And, you know, quite literally by, you know, day two, it was 140 degree ground temperature. We're running across, you know, Mauritania and every single day it's 140 degrees and it is just destroying us. I mean, we don't have like a, you know, we don't have ice. We don't have cold drinks, but we don't have like, there's, we have a support team out there trying to, you know, help us not die. But, uh, you know, I think the most interesting part of that first week is that I realized that I was actually going about it all wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I got to day seven and two of my support people had already quit my two running teammates were both on IVs. I mean, none of that was my fault, but like, it was just this very difficult situation. And <clears throat> I began to panic. And I started to look at, you know, maps and thinking, you know, we're never even going to get out of Mauritania, much less 
make it all the way to the Red Sea on the other side of Africa. And it was actually in that day that I figured out my, my mistake, if you will, was that I was so focused on the goal and I was focused on the end that I, I forgot, in a sense, that the only miles I could run were the, were the ones right in front of me. Like the miles that I'm running today are the only ones that I have any hope of actually controlling. And if I run those, if I can get through those, then I get a chance to run tomorrow's miles. And by changing my thinking on day eight, I got up and I ran a marathon in the morning and that's all I thought about. <clears throat> Took a little break for lunch and in the afternoon I ran a second marathon. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I put my little mat on the ground and I looked up at a billion stars because there, there wasn't a, an electric light within, you know, 500 miles. And, and I just gave thanks, you know, to the universe for the fact that I was out there suffering and alive and having this really unbelievable experience. And once that mindset changed and I, and I really went back to, you know, the mantra one day at a time and, and applied it to this situation Slowly but surely, we began to make our way across the Sahara. And, you know, and uh, 111 days later, you know, we ran nearly two marathons every single day for that entire time without taking a single day off. You know, we made it all the way to the Red Sea on the other side of Egypt and put our feet in the Red Sea and, and celebrated and, um, you know, it was a magical time, but at, I mean, I hate to be too cliche here, but it was so anticlimactic to get to the end. And it truly was all about the experiences that we had in crossing the desert. A lot of them were really difficult. You know, they were, you know, they were hard. They were, you know, there were arguments. There were, we ran out of food and water and there were threats from production to pull the plug because we weren't going fast enough. And like, I mean, it was a, it was a fight every single day to stay out there, but it was all, you know, it was all worth it. Hope our listeners will, will, will lean in on that one part there. You know, there's so much that goes into something like that of that magnitude, or even someone going out and running their first half marathon or marathon of their life that day where that's going to happen is an important part of that. But the process, taking joy in the journey is where I want you guys to listen and lean in on that. There's some strength of purpose in taking joy in the journey. So, so you do this amazing, all these incredible things, one of which is running again across the freaking Sahara Desert, 111 days, this incredibly vast, expansive run. But in 2010, life throws an incredible curveball at you. And ultimately, you end up in a federal penitentiary in West Virginia. And the next running feat is on a track that's not but a tenth of a mile. Tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so I come home from the Sahara and, I, and I, I'm on Jay Leno and NPR and all the morning news shows. And I get a speaking agent and like, you know. Life is good. Things are things are moving. I'm making a little bit of money. I'm I'm happy and and things are great. And and I um, I come home one day, living in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I get out of my car after running some errands. And six armed federal agents, 
you know, come chasing after me out of the coffee shop in the building and they handcuff me and put me in the back of the car and take me to jail. And I don't have a clue. I mean, I, I literally have no idea what's going on. I'm certain that it's the wrong guy type of a thing. And I don't find out until the next day that I'm being indicted by the federal government for, you know, essentially for overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005. And I didn't even know that was a thing, but, um, you know, I don't like, and you know, you know this about me, I don't necessarily like to dwell on the, the details of the, of the case itself. I went to trial because I wasn't going to admit to something I hadn't done. And I was willing to face the consequences of that. And if anybody wants to know more, you can read the book or you can actually even just go to my website. On my own website, charlieangle.com, I have all the newspaper articles from the New York Times and from other places that describe this. You know, in short, I had just enough notoriety as this person who'd run across the Sahara and done some other things um, to be interesting, but not enough money by any stretch of the imagination to actually defend myself. And that is another factor mm -hmm. very often is that, you know, people... Uh, who are accused of crimes really don't have the ability to defend themselves. Anyway, I go to trial. I'm actually found not guilty of of uh, providing false information on a loan application. Like not guilty, hooray! But I'm found guilty of mail fraud because I signed a closing package that actually included false information, and it was actually everyone agreed. I didn't know it was in there, but it didn't matter. I signed the package, which means that I attested to it. I put it in the mail, sent it across the country, which constituted mail fraud. So I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia. And life as I knew it, I mean, interesting, Brian, life ended, the life that I had ended the day I got arrested. Because the next day, we live in a society where it, judgment is instantaneous mm. and no one was going to wait around to find out what happened or what didn't happen. So all my sponsors were gone. All my, I was booted off the board. You know, I'm the co-founder of water.org, which is the largest clean water nonprofit in the world. You won't find my name anywhere to this day because, you know, that's the way life works, you know, and it, that all, that nonprofit came out of running the Sahara. And, so the, the point of all that, though, is that on Valentine's Day 2011, my two teenage boys end up driving me to West Virginia and dropping me off at the front gate. And I laugh because mm -hmm. I, I, I have a sense of humor around all this stuff. Maybe I didn't have quite the same, same sense of humor back then. But in a way, I think that I did, because strangely, and this is the weirdest thing you'll ever hear anyone say, I, I would... I, would, I don't know you well enough to know for sure that that's the case, because you might be weirder than that. But I was the most prepared person you'll ever meet to go to prison. <laughs> like, you know, a dozen years of hardcore drug use, you know, out on the streets, putting myself in all kinds of difficult situations. About 20 years almost of really hardcore running all over the planet and you know, I thrive on hardship and, and I, that's not a compliment to me. That's not saying I'm tough. But the point is that I seek out hardship and I always have. In this case, I didn't seek it out. It came and found me. But 
I got the chance to live what I've told people in recovery for my whole life. You actually don't know what you're made of until everything falls apart. And for most of us, everything doesn't, everything doesn't ever completely fall apart. Like that's not how, you know, someone in your family might get sick. You might lose your job or you might, there's going to, there's hardships that have happened, but rarely does it all happen at once. So I arrive in prison kind of as this clean slate. And I'm like, I was angry, really angry. I was sad. I was scared. Um, but it took about a day to figure out that fair or unfair was irrelevant. This is your reality. Yeah. I had to choose. I had to decide who am I going to be in this situation? And, you know, the not to put too fine a point on it, the first person that I really met in there was a 63-year-old black gentleman who got a 25-year sentence for one gram of crack cocaine. One gram. And he'd already been in prison for over 20 years. So this guy lost his entire life over some, I won't curse on your podcast, but over some nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to complain about what's how unfair it is for me. <laughs> I mean, I, that was a definition in a way of privilege. And I realized on that day that my happiness was still 100% in my control and not anybody else's. How I chose to go through that experience was going to be completely up to me. And I did what I what I always do. I started running. And like you said, there's just this little, I called it a goat path around the recreation yard, you know, and I started running around that thing. And, you know, and it, and it, it became my savior, my mantra, my meditation, my, you know, I was the middle-aged, middle-class white boy running around the track all the time. And it sort of became this funny, uh, I got picked on, you know, I got teased about it. Not, not in a mean way so much, but that's where Running Man came from. Is this guy yelled across the track to me. He's like, hey, Running Man, what's up? You know, and that became sort of my, you know, my prison nickname, which was kind of funny. And uh, there's worse ones. So I'm, I, I'm glad, you know. And um, I just embraced it. I embraced it. And in the spirit of addiction recovery and attraction rather than promotion, not one time did I ever go up to other people and say, hey, you should come run with me um, or whatever. But slowly but surely, people started coming to me. And they started saying, but you know why? Because it's just like the rest of life. They saw my experience being better than theirs, or they saw things that were happening for me or the way I just conducted myself in a positive light and and they they wanted some of that you know if you're willing to go to any lengths <laughs> and they wanted some of that and they started to ask me and so yoga you know i started doing yoga on the softball field by the way by myself um when i was in there and if you ever decide to go to federal prison brian i do not recommend doing <laughs> yoga on the softball field Noted. yeah Noted. just keep that in mind However, by the time I left Beckley a year and a half later, you know, I had 50 guys in my running group. I had, and I mean running every single day. I had more than 10 guys who lost 100 pounds or more. I had about 20 guys doing yoga with me on the softball field three days a week. And, you know, it, they, they got me through this experience. I didn't get them through it. They got me through it. So in those moments... 
where you are faced with this hardship, you say, I'm going to do the thing I, I know to do, the thing that I love. But then what you just said there was they ultimately picked up your six in this moment. How much time have you taken to reflect on that in the years since about what happened in there? Ton. You just gave me goosebumps. So, I mean, tons. Because it's, look, man, the day I left there, and we're going to go back and talk about Badwater in a second, but the day yeah. I left there, like these guys are all coming up to me and hugging me and crying. And this, that this, this doesn't happen in prison. <laughs> all right. <laughs> they're thanking me for what I did for them. I'm like blown away. Cause I don't know what they're talking about. I didn't do anything for them. And I mean, I don't mean to say, I, I don't like that mantra that, that, that sobriety is basically selfish, but in a sense it is. But the, the, the old thing that I love, my very first sponsor taught me is to keep it. You have to give it away. And so whatever you have, whatever your gift is, if you're not sharing it with other people and giving it freely, and I don't mean it doesn't always have to be for free, but if you're not generous with whatever it is that you're giving, then what are you doing? Why have that gift to begin with? What there's nothing doing, nothing good for you in hoarding that. And so Mm-hmm. I was just blown away by, you know, their response. And, and it was great for me to be able to say, you guys don't understand, you know, you, you made this experience not just tolerable. This didn't turn out to be something that I just got through or that I, you know, was glad to have behind me. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go back, <laughs> mind you, but um you know, the experience changed me in nothing but positive ways. I got a real perspective on what it's like for most of society, and in particular for most of impoverished society. We hear a lot of language these days about entitlement and around, uh, you know, anyway, that's not, I don't have a political conversation, but, you know, it is a um, it is a fact. You know, most people have absolutely no clue what it's like and how people end up there. They just simply think that because they ended up there, then to reverse engineer it, then they must be guilty of something terrible. And it's just simply not true. And it's it's a machine that is forever being fed by more people going in. Incredible. So incredible. You mentioned Badwater. For those that are listening that are long distance runners or fans of Uh, people that uh, accomplish these incredible feats or know anything about David Goggins or Courtney Dewalter, these other incredible ultra athletes, maybe they've heard that or heard of that race before. So how does Badwater fit in this story? Yeah. So Badwater is a, as a, is, I don't like doing races more than once, quite frankly. I mean, you look back through my resume, you will rarely see something I've done more than once. Boston marathon, a lot of times, just because Boston's such a cool experience and Badwater is the other one. And it's because there's a lot more of the planet to see, but Badwater has attracted me seven times and this year will actually be my eighth. And it's 135 miles across Death Valley from the lowest place in uh, the United States uh, called Badwater all the way to near the top of Mount Whitney, 135 miles later. So, and of course this doesn't happen like in January when it's cool, it happens in the middle of July. Perfect. Uh, second week in July, right. It's Perfect. just, bom- it's a little balmy, you know, it's about 200 degree surface temperatures uh-huh. out there in Death Valley. And, um, you know, while I was in prison, I, I actually picked up, it's the craziest thing. I picked up like a sports illustrated and I was still, 
you know, I was still licking my wounds the first couple of months. And so I was not like, I didn't like to read the paper. I didn't, almost didn't want to know what was going on out there. I'm just going to shut it down. We're just going to shut it down. But I picked up this magazine. The magazine was a couple of years old and there's a little blurb how Sports Illustrated always has these little things. And like, it was about, um, you know, Badwater and probably Dean Carnassus or somebody and like, you know, this, this race. And I went out for a run that day around around the track and quite literally I just started thinking I'm like you know I can't be out there and it won't be as hot but there is no reason that I can't run 135 miles around this silly little track that I'm running on here and you know it's a way to spiritually um, engage with this event that I love with a mindset that I love giving me that goal. And so I started to train. I didn't tell anybody cause it's completely like crazy as this sounds like it's, it's technically like against the rules in most prisons, federal system to run more than like three miles at one time, which is, it's one of those crazy. I don't know. Maybe they think if you get away that they can't catch you. So they don't want you to be in too good a shape, but Um, you know, I began to train for this thing and do, you know, what I do. And I didn't tell anyone before the day arrived. And I went out that morning at like five o'clock in the morning. As soon as they opened my unit, I was able to go out to breakfast and I skipped breakfast and went straight to the track and I started to run. And I had a, I had a job in prison, which was in the recreation department. So there's, there's a funny story in the book about, me having like put on all my my prison stuff and my boots and go like clean the pool table or sweep the I mean I had to go do some stuff then I go back out but to the track and I yeah. right and I ended up running like um 80 85 miles I think that first day and I had to be inside by 10 o'clock you know that's when the last call but I, I kept having to run into my unit for count times because five times a day you have to be in your mm-hmm. cell to be counted and crazy how they have all these rules in prison but um you know i was able to cram in over 80 miles on that first day and so you know that left me um about 55 miles on the second day and i was able to get out there the next morning and and get it done by about dinner time that day and and i had moments there was a guard who actually came up to me he this guy i, I always thought he had it in for me and you know he I see this like little gator, you know, he's riding a gator coming across the whole rec yard right towards me. And he's like, you know, Engel, what are you doing? And I actually didn't, I didn't lie. I just told him, I said, you know, I'm just, I'm running a really long way over a couple of days. And uh, he's like, I heard, and I only told like one person, so I knew who blabbed, but you know, I heard you're running this, uh, this Badlands thing. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like technically it's bad water. Thank you very much. But yes, you know, I am. And, um, and it was one of the, those interesting moments where he looks at me and he kind of cocks his head a little bit and he's like, all right, well, good luck. And he, and he, you know, gets back on his gator and, and rides away. And it was, I don't know. I see that as a, you know, higher power spiritual moment of, you know, I had earned that moment uh, by having faith in this idea that if I just keep moving forward, that good things will always happen. 
He could have shut you down in that moment. He could have yeah. told you to stop and they could have drug you back inside. And you wouldn't have much of a choice, but to have to. Sort yeah, of but you want to know what I would have done? You know what I would have done. I, <laughs> there were times up. when we were in lockdown before, you know, during the time I was there and I would run in place, you know, and okay, maybe it's not the same thing, but I calculated like how many miles running in place yep. over how much time. And like my, my mentality was unless they, and I think this is, you know, I feel comfortable that this is the, if, if, if it's not the guiding principle of my life, then it's one of them, you know, short of being strapped to a frigging gurney, I was going to keep running and whatever it took. And I think almost anything that we all approach, the other thing about it, I, I want to interject this too, as addict, as an addict, I don't speak for anybody else, but we are gifted people. And if we can, I learned early on, if we can take basically our superpower, which is addiction, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, because it's the only reason I'm actually good at a couple of things. If I could take that and point it towards the things that I want to accomplish and that I'm passionate about, then I will get those things done. And I know, I know that basically there's always going to be bumps. There's always going to be reasons where I can justify quitting. And, you know, I just, I don't want that to ever be the case. You know, I've not completed a couple of things and it quite literally is because I was <laughs> laying on the side of the trail, passed out, you know, I mean, I've been medically pulled from stuff a couple of times and I can live with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can live with that, but too often with addiction, relapse specifically, but with relapse, with relationships, with jobs, with running, we quit at our lowest moment. We quit at that time that we feel the worst. And people are probably listening to this saying, well, duh, <laughs> that's, that's when you quit. That's, that's not the time to quit. You know, we know from experience as, as addicts that, um, in fact, that's the time to, to make the right decision. So I'll make it more in running. If I feel that way as a runner, I know that actually I need to eat, I need to drink, I need to probably slow down a little and walk for 10 minutes. And if I do those things, my body will magically start to feel a little bit better. I might still decide to quit later, but I don't want to quit in that moment because I'm going to feel better shortly thereafter. So I don't want to relapse in this bad moment because actually if I just go to bed and I get up the next, and I can't tell you how many times in my life I've said, you know what, if I feel this crappy again tomorrow, I'm done. I'm done. Like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to whatever. I mean, I've said those words to myself mostly, but inevitably I get up the next day and I'm like, man, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, you know, I'm just happy to be here. And, and I think that that mentality can serve us extremely well because we really are. You think about the energy, the effort and the planning and the conniving and the brilliance, actually, that it takes to be a prosperous drug addict or alcoholic like if you could just take that energy and put it towards something good you could do anything and you can find in yourself where and why you've been put on this globe to be yeah. able to keep running to help keep this thing spinning as we go charlie i want you to come back i want you to come back and, and talk to us again because there's so much more to unpack 
not just in your story, but in about what's going to happen in the future for you. So if you'd be willing, I'd love for you to come back and talk about what the next journey of your life looks like, how, how in those moments and in, in one of your favorite races to go in what bad water does is from an extreme low point, geographically, physically to an extreme high point that's led you to pursue something now in your life as well. So will you come back and talk to us more about just your journey and, and what you're hoping to accomplish through pursuit of physical endurance and pushing it? You know, I will, Brian. I, you know, I can't stop talking. So you know that. So No, it's amazing. No, I would love it. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. I hope our listeners are listening to this one saying, guys, don't stop here. We, there's so much more to unpack. But that's not how we do it here. All right. We're going to we're going to we're going to bring Charlie back and talk about more of these things. I've had the personal privilege of running alongside him for a few laps in a local endurance race here called the Oakwood 24, where we run for 24 hours, raising money for healing transitions, a men's rehabilitation center in the Raleigh area. We got to get you back to unpack more and talk about these future pursuits for you as well. Will you do that for us? Uh, anytime, man. Anytime. Your story you is incredible. Ask. The book is Running Man, a memoir. You can find them at charlieingle.com as well. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Pick Up the Six before you come back in the future. Thank you, brother. He's Charlie Ingle. I'm Brian Jodis, and this is Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>